Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Well, hey there, Dr. Robin. How does today find you? Was up at six, watched the news, caught an episode of The Crown. I'm living my best life in December. I I mean, look, listeners, y'all know that the fact that Dr. Robin says that they were up at 6 a.m. is in and of itself a December miracle. So we should all just kind of sit and pause and make note of this moment because it's Advent morning for you. It's Advent. I am (laughs) up waiting and in expectation. Yes. Yes. I'm pregnant with ideas. (laughs) You, you are, you are the, uh, you are the uh, incarnate, the incarnate daddy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But listen, uh, just, just so uh, you know, I opened my door this morning at like, okay. 7 or 7.30, and there are three packages sitting there. Man, deliveries are happening all through the day, all through the night. Do you want to know what they were? (laughs) I don't know if I do want to know, but please tell me. Were they bourbon? So one package was my advent calendar from Shannon. Okay, yes, your bourbon bottles. Yeah. Good. And who knows when they did. I guess they delivered them yesterday. I didn't open the door yesterday. (laughs) The okay. the other package was my Dr. Fauci saint candle that I bought. You're right. <laughs> because I'm scared shitless of getting, you know, contracting COVID. And so you're going to light your Dr. Fauci candle every day so yeah. that... Yes, I am. Good. Good. And the third package was like five pounds of Lopsong Sachang tea that I bought. <laughs> Because they didn't have, they didn't have a four ounce package, so so they said. So, so when you so when you can't buy four ounces, you buy five pounds. Well, that was the only other option, so that's what I bought, <laughs> and so I had some this morning. See, some people buy their pot that way, but I've never heard of anybody <laughs> buying their tea that way. Right, right, right. I mean, oh my god! You know, I buy two so pounds of have- coffee a month and five pounds of tea, so. Oh my goodness. I'm I am just full of giggles this morning. That just cracks me up. And it's 1117 uh, and I'm like awake and like I feel like I could run a marathon. Well, what what our listeners also should know at this point is that in about an hour and a half, you are going to hit the proverbial wall and you will be having what might turn into a 4-hour siesta this afternoon. Well, that's that's true actually. Okay. That's very okay. true. Yes. Because I mean right now it's like 4 in the afternoon for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um but yes, I will probably go back to bed and sleep until supper and then eat and then go back to bed at 9. Um right. 
because I need and my then all will be right with the world. <laughs> yes. Uh, but so that's how I am. I was up at six. How are you? I'm good. I am good. I have, um, you know, some of our listeners may know I run a, a fun little side business um, where I print, uh, design and print socially uh, awkward and religiously awkward t-shirts and apparel. I run a fun little shop on Etsy called Bias and Bourbon because those are what I've, I'm fueled by. I'm fueled by bias and I'm fueled by bourbon. And so, um, you know, it's and, and you actually season. make all of my t-shirts. I do. I make all of your t-shirts. I am, I am the official clother of Dr. Robin. I feel um, like that should, that should be, you know, like in Europe, in England, how the, the, the Royal family, like, knighted elton john i feel like yeah. i feel like you should have a title for being the clother of clothier <laughs> yeah i think just simply saying that i clothe you makes people question things and i think we could probably stop there because it's fun to make people yeah. wonder okay yeah <laughs> okay we so, like the, we like to uh, let the curiosity burn we do we do um but yeah so you know thankfully um, I mean, this little business is is how I help support myself and my family, and right. it's it's holiday time, so my orders are increasing, and I'm doing a lot of a lot of work, shipping a lot of things out for the holidays. So I've had a busy a busy few days, uh, you know, doing that, and uh, otherwise, I'm also good. I am I'm excited for the holiday. Are you selling a lot of masks? I am good. I I am selling a lot of masks. Of course, all of my masks are also snarky. Yeah. Um, and I would say probably the one that I'm getting the most traction on right now and is going out the door the fastest is the one that says "Welcome to the shit show." Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. Have yeah. you ever seen Have you ever seen the film Idiocracy? Yes. We're yes. living that right now. We are. We are. So yeah, people want uh, "Welcome to the shit show" masks. And, um, I just made a brand new shirt, um, that I'm really proud of that says, uh, the whole system was designed to silence you screw that system. Yeah. And I'm selling a lot of those. And so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun holiday for, uh, justice centric and, uh, you know, socially awkward t-shirt sales. Now, yeah, were people distant, socially distancing, physically distancing at the market? Or how was that? Yeah, so there was a holiday market here in Chattanooga, and I had originally canceled my attendance there because of COVID. But once I got COVID, as our listeners know, I was diagnosed with COVID about four weeks ago and recovered. And because I have antibodies, um, I decided that I would go back. And, mm -hmm. and do the market and got permission from my doctor and really kind of went through a litany of kind of safety checks to make mm -hmm. sure that that was going to be a, an okay decision for me. And the market was, yeah, they did well. The, the market itself, the managers of the market were very diligent, um, requiring mask wearing, requiring social distancing, um, gave us as vendors complete, um, authorization to ask people to mask up when they 
came into our booths, if they had taken their masks off, they were walking around and reminding people to put their masks back on if they oh, weren't good. wearing them any longer. And so it was, um, it was a much more um, assertive form of, of, uh, you know, reminders than, yeah. than I have seen in a lot of places over the last few weeks. So it was, I, I, I didn't feel uncomfortable while I was there. So. Um, and thing, things are still pretty bad here in Tennessee. Things are horrible. Things are horrible in Chattanooga. I know they're horrible in Nashville. They're horrible a lot of places. And I am, I, I know that we keep, there are a lot of people who keep saying, well, the vaccination is coming. The vaccine is coming. It'll be here soon. But inevitably we could be looking at another 250,000 Americans that are dead between now and when we are able to vaccinate people. And that's just unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I don't, I don't think people grasp the, the atrocity and the, the, the flippancy with which we are um, approaching this holiday season. And um, I want to tell y'all once, I'll tell you a million more times. If you went to Thanksgiving with your families, um, shame on you. If you're planning to go to Christmas with your families and other people, um, please, please, please change your plans. Mm-hmm. Please stay home. It's just the most important thing you can do. So, well, today is going to be fun. We got a big day today. Today is going to be so fun. Um, we are thrilled that um, we have a, a guest on today that that is going to um, make you think, make you laugh, make us laugh. Um, we are welcoming writer and speaker and sex educator Tristan Tormino. We are thrilled that she is with us. And uh, let's get this episode started. Yeah. Tristan, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Hey, hi, thanks for having me. So probably your um, voice is going to be new to some of our listeners, but we want them to get to know you. And I'm wondering if you don't have to give all your socials because we'll add that at the at the end. But why don't you let folks know where you are, what you're doing, and... Um, you know, get all the good juicy details in there. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't want to give you my whole origin story. That would be long. Well, Um, we'd be here for days if you did that. I know. So um, I'm Tristan Taramino. I am from New York. I moved to LA five years ago. And I, I think of myself as a sex educator. Under that banner, I wear a lot of different hats. Um, I'm a writer. I've written some books. I've edited some books. I I do a lot of speaking, lectures at colleges and universities and going to conferences. I host my own podcast, which is called Sex Out Loud. So you can check that out on all podcast platforms. And um, I'm a general sort of uh, rabble rouser and a media yeah. maker. I've made other kinds of media over my career. And... Um, And for several years now, I have made anti-racist work uh, a deeper and more central part of all the work that I do. So I first uh, got to know you through your books, through your book, Opening Up, which is a book, uh, a really brilliant book around open relationships and non-monogamy. 
during a time when I really felt the failure of um, heteropatriarchal monogamy. And so a friend introduced me to your book and I devoured it in a day. And to my surprise, years later, you were speaking at Sex Down South. Now, I do have to say, I was curious what this white woman was going to say to a group of mostly POC people. And you hit it out of the park. I remember telling you that. And I remember sitting or standing on the BART platform when I was in faculty in Berkeley, um, waiting for the train, messaging you to want, wanting to talk about the intersection of sex education and anti-racism, your work in anti-racism. And from there, we've just been in touch and connected and you know, had great times together. Um, I feel curious about something. And I'm wondering if you would expand upon this. What really compelled you to start working at this intersection of sex education and anti-racism? Yeah, I mean, I... I want to both honor but also acknowledge the problematics that it was the labor of women of color. Mm. In other words, in 2014 a coalition of women of color who um, formed the Women of Color um, Sexual Health Network, Wokshin, um, released a statement calling out white sex educators. It was around a specific thing, which was um, a book had just been released called Secrets of the Sex Masters. And it was an anthology and it featured, I don't know, something like 15 or 20 sex educators writing about their specialty. I was not in the book. Um, and they were all white. Mm -hmm. um, also, the word masters was in it, which maybe is problematic too. Oh. Um, <laughs> just saying. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like when you think of it now, you sort of cringe. It's like white people all over the cover, masters. Right. Maybe right. not the best yep. choice. Yeah, super inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, so the Women of Color Sexual Health Network and several women of color wrote this really long, um, compelling, comprehensive call out, essentially, saying, you know, this has been going on for far too long. Here's a really concrete example we can point to when we say sex education is racist. Mm -hmm. um, and... I read it and I I had known some of the people who wrote it. Um, I'd seen them present at various conferences and it was a wake up call for me. Mm. I took it, I took it to heart. I, I had actually been invited in the book and I had declined. Oh really? Um, well, I had declined, it's weird, based on this weird gut feeling I had. Mm. Like they approached me and I was like, huh. And they said, you know, these are the people who are also in it. And I was like, hmm. No. Mm. <laughs> and I yeah. can't totally explain why that was, but in the moment, it didn't feel right to me. Mm -hmm. So then there's this call out and I I took it to heart. I mean, I felt like they were speaking to me. Yeah. Um, and as someone who's in a position of power in the sex education community, I've been doing it for more than 20 years um, and I'm seen as a leader mm -hmm. and I take that role seriously. I thought to myself, okay, I've got to, I've really got to look at this. I've got, I've got to look at this. Yeah. And 
you know, I'm a person who considered myself anti-racist before that. In fact, I was just, when I was writing my memoir, I found my college essay, my undergrad college essay, and it was about racism. Mm. And I didn't even remember like what I wrote about, but it was about the racism in this all white town that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've always considered myself anti-racist, but I was not, I was very passively anti-racist. Right. Right. And now I felt like, okay, I've got to actually enact this. I've got to do something. And those same women and non-binary folks, um, began presenting at sex education conferences and I went to all their classes. Um, I collaborated with them on a few things. I, I read the hell out of all the things, you know, all the things. Yeah. Um, and then when I got to LA, I found this group called, um, aware Alliance of white anti-racists everywhere, the LA chapter. And, you know, I felt like, okay, here, here's an in-person, not in-person now, but, you know, here's an in-person group of anti-racists working, and I want to sort of join this group. And it is organized in a really great way where there are different arms of the organization. And, like, one of them is white people, like, unpacking their whiteness in, in a room with other white people and doing, like, the personal work, the personal mm-hmm. and the interior work. And then then they have this activist arm, White People for Black Lives, and then they have this thing called the Whiteness Institute. And so I really, it's been, now it's been like six years, and I feel like this is at the center, racial justice is at the center of what I do now. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people are going to get caught up with the fact that we've we've named you as a sex educator and people can go online and and read all about your work there which has been really important um, in terms of prevention and um, educating people and you know our listeners come from well all over the world but mostly are sort of progressive Christian adjacent folks who have probably not settled their whole sex dilemmas hmm. but I but I I want I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, the importance of this interior work that 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 you started doing with Aware, because you know I know that at the Activist Theology Project and Anna, you can chime in to to talk a little bit about what we've been doing is is how important that interpersonal and the interior work is to this work, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit. Um, about that work, because most people, especially in 2020, have read all the books, they've read, you know, they've listened to all the podcasts, they've gotten all the data. But when it comes down to becoming anti-racist, it is about our relationship to this cultural being called supremacy culture. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can share a little bit about that interior work that you've been charting for years. Yeah, I mean, I began it before Aware, but then I felt like Aware has this very clear structure and they've been doing it for a bazillion years. And their Whiteness Institute, which is like an 80-hour training, was life-changing for me. Mm-hmm. Um I think we can't we can't authentically like repost on Instagram or go to a march to make a sort of public 
performative statement if we haven't done the internal work. Mm-hmm. Like, like doing the internal work fuels then the external work, right? Or the activism or the public work. Mm-hmm. And, but it's hard and it's yeah. really, really uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's deeply uncomfortable to examine your own white privilege and, and the ways in which you benefit from being white, even when you don't quote, want to, and the ways in which I contribute to white supremacy and I uphold racism. I mean, it's baked into uh, my DNA as a white person. And so there's no escaping it. There's only like every morning waking up and saying, what am I doing to support this system of oppression? What am I doing to dismantle it? Um, What am I doing to help other people engage and educate themselves. And, um, and that's why I also feel, you know, it's, it's controversial to have these all white spaces, right? Right. People have a lot of feelings about that. But the great thing about an all white space is that white people can, can really say dumb things. They can be really vulnerable they can um, unpack their stuff in real time, which can be very painful for the person doing it and the people watching, yeah. right? When they're like having a light bulb moment. And that that doesn't have to be in a space where people of color have to witness that and be re-traumatized. Yeah. So for me, an all-white space has been a place where I can really be challenged and also like dig as deep as I can because... I know that I'm not harming people in the process of me trying to like work this shit out. Mm-hmm. I love that you have named the the need, or at least the um, the, the the need for this this white space. That yes, you're right. We, we are highly critical, highly critical of anything that uh, lifts or 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 assumes a space for white people that is exclusive of anyone else and yet there's this there there is so much work that we still have yet to do that we haven't found a way to get around um, that does continue to traumatize others in in our in our work we we do the work and yet we are still hurting others in the process of that of that work um at the Activist Theology Project, we're doing a lot of work as team members and, and leaders of this organization around what it really means to be in relationship with one another, intimate with one another in ways that are different from um, sexual intimacy, but intimate nonetheless. And I think that as someone who was conditioned in whiteness, who was raised in a home where sexuality was not talked about ever. Um, I mean, I, I barely knew what was coming with my menstrual cycle, much less anything else that had to do with my body as a woman. I, I am someone who has had to really untangle the my understanding of my my whiteness, my understanding of my sexuality, my understanding of intimacy as it relates to others, both that I am in 
uh, friendship and and intimate relationships with and and those that I am in sexual and intimate relationships with. I'm wondering if you can kind of take that that understanding of intimacy, um, both interpersonal and personal, and and help us understand and craft for us a narrative of how that then also work works into your your anti racist uh, anti racist work. Right. So, I think one of the problems with sex education in this country, besides it, it just being a total failure uh, for young people, especially, um, is that sex is considered a sort of um, neutral, apolitical thing. It, it's just sex, right? That's the phrase that comes to mind. And uh, everyone has sex. And so, hey, if you're giving sex tips, there's nothing there has there's nothing to do with class or race or ability or body like it's just it's sex we all have sex we're all that's sort the sort of we're all the same kind of thing the sort of colorblind thing is right. absolutely at work in sex education yeah. um yes and what that ignore that ignores so many things first of all it ignores actual bodies and how bodies like operate in the world, walk in the world, are treated in the world, are read, are misread, are criminalized, um, are devalued. You know, there are bodies that are valued over other bodies in, in American culture. And so then we bring those bodies to our sex lives, both solo and with partners, and they've already had all this messaging projected onto them. So the notion that everyone even has equal access to pleasure it is false. It, it's entirely problematic. The idea that we can all access 100% fully, be in our bodies, and experience pleasure regardless of our social location, it's just it's a myth. It's it's a myth that we have to let go of. And the idea that we can then partner with people and not only have access to pleasure, but access to our yes, our no, what we want, what we need, what we desire, how to speak those desires, all of those things are mediated by race and class and ability and immigration status and all sorts of social identities. Um, so the notion that we're like talking about sex and so everyone has sex and it's it's all good is is mythology that we have to challenge because the truth is like we bring these oppressive systems right there. We, we bring our daily oppression, which happens to our bodies into our relationships. And often we reenact trauma. We certainly reenact power dynamics that are unexamined. Um, and so, and that affects the way that we relate to each other. Right. Right. I'm so glad that you started there. I'm so glad that you that that you frame this this conversation around intimacy, regardless of what form it takes, with this recognition that we must have regarding how sex as a verb has been co-opted through supremacy culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so as we're looking at uh, at intimacy, how how do we then 
transform our understanding or or the the health of that intimacy through a lens of anti-racism. I mean, in some ways, we've got to do it through all the lenses, right? Because sex is steeped in heteronormativity, in mononormativity. And, um, and so there is there is a definition of what constitutes sex, the right sex, the sex we should be having, the sex we shouldn't be having. And all of that is framed around multiple systems of oppression. And so one thing is to sort of wrestle it, wrestling it away from heteronormativity is one of the biggest challenges because we have these ideas circulating that we've internalized about what sex is. I mean, this is where I think queerness has like expanded my sexual life a hundredfold because queer people know that sex isn't one thing, that there isn't a default kind of sex that every queer person is having, that sex requires creativity and imagination and communication Mm -hmm. and negotiation. And that's kind of built into it. So I think we've got to wrestle also away from heteronormativity and and just these ideas that there are appropriate desires and there are appropriate needs and there are appropriate ways to have sex. And then everyone else not doing that um, is on the margins, is um, amoral, is a pervert, uh, is somehow contradicting, you know, what is moral and right in this country. I love this. I'm also wondering about um, the role of religion in all of this because come on, we you know we live in a country that um, peddles a, a certain kind of religious authority that is also tied to a moral framework, mm-hmm. and it's a kind I think of Christian supremacy. And Christian hegemony that is texturizing things like sex, things like um, what is the right kind of relationship to have. I mean, even the marriage equality movement, right, was was really branded from a Christian standpoint as the the, the right thing for LGBTQ people to do, and and we could talk about whether that was a good or bad thing, but but I just want to think about with you the narrative, the religious narrative that that undermines a lot of this work, really. Mm-hmm. And I'm and, and I'm wondering, you know, for people, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are spiritually fluid and have done a lot of deconstruction work. But I'm wondering if you can speak to what you have seen as as maybe an outsider, one who one who maybe at one time left um, the the majority religious perspective, um, I'm just wondering if you can reflect on what you have seen, the damage done, mm. and what kind of repair is needed, because I think this year I have seen a lot of people feel a void in their life, but they don't want to, they don't want to practice a dominant form of religion because of all the harm that it's caused. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, I will say, so um, my grandparents on my mom's side uh, were who I only knew my mom's side of the family growing up because my parents were divorced. Long story. But so um, they got married in the 1930s and she was Catholic and he was Protestant. And right now I'm watching this Showtime series called The Tudors, which is about Henry VIII Mm -hmm. and um, in the 1500s and the beginning of the Reformation. Um, So I'm getting all this like background on, I think, I feel my grandparents, my white, waspy, British (laughs) grandparents. Um, So everything I learned, I learned from Showtime about religion. But so what happened was my my grandmother was a devout Catholic. she brought her kids up to be devout Catholics. My father also came from a really strongly religious Catholic background. And so when I was born, um, I became aware, I don't know, maybe when I was seven or eight, that I hadn't been baptized. Oh. Everyone in my family had been baptized. Um, My grandmother gave these beautiful gold crosses to all of my cousins but me. Hmm. And I went to a predominantly Catholic and Christian school where people told me I was going to burn in hell. Oh, wow. And of course, when I, when I went to my parents and said, like, why didn't you baptize me? You know, they, in their like feminist hippie ways, were like, no, Tristan, this is not for us to choose. You will find your own spiritual path when you get older. <laughs> Right. But of course, when you're eight, you're like, mom, why did you like burnish me with this? (laughs) That I'm different from all the other kids. Right. Right. But what I'll say about it is growing up around sexuality and exploring sexuality, there were, there's certain limits that weren't in place for me. Mm-hmm. There, there, like shame has not been a big part of my life for a, for a very long time. Everyone experiences shame, but I definitely don't experience it around sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. And that shamelessness in part comes from the fact that I didn't have these rules set out for me. I wasn't at Sunday school. I wasn't hearing from a very, very early age about, you know, the body as a source of sin or um, or sexuality and desire as not godly. Right. Right. And so then when I got to know people who had been raised in various religions, they had all of this intense religious trauma. Right. They had so much to get over. And this is straight people. This is queer people. um, This is all sorts of folks where they're sitting down with me and telling me the reason I can't access my desires, the reason I can't share this with my partner, the reason that I can't imagine my sex life in a different way is because, you know, for 20 years I was indoctrinated mm-hmm. that there's this one kind of sex and I know I'm not having it. And so I'm pretty much doomed mm-hmm. and, and not having to sort of undo that, that trauma, I think like fast tracked me in some way. Um, to being able to have a positive relationship with my body and with sex. Whereas I think the majority of people that I talk to and I come across have some form of religious baggage around sex. And what it does is it really stunts them and it prevents them. It prevents them from even considering what their own authentic sexuality might look like. Mm. That's so rich.
Everyone's gone quiet. No, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm so I, I mean, for many, many years, I was that person, right? Um, I, I have been highly conditioned in, in many of the ways that you've just explained. And I, I think some of it was because of religion, but I also think that some of it was simply because I was raised in a family, um, both immediate and extended, who just simply weren't good or capable of exploring conversations that were in any way considered to be outside of whatever their norm was, Mm -hmm. norm, you know, at, at the time. And so I think... We, so often we look at and, and and is that not the same thing that that we are that we are experiencing and seeing in people who've come to recognize their their own white supremacy in moments there you know they, there's a point where all of us say oh that's why I am the way I am fill in the blank whether that's related to their their understanding of sex their understanding of intimacy their understanding of privilege their understanding of white supremacy their understanding of trauma i mean no matter what it is we are coming at we all many of us have a moment where we say oh oh god okay that's why i respond to this thing in this way and so often it is because the normalization of conversation and the normalization of relationship that we were conditioned into for the first 18, 20, I mean, in some cases, only five or eight years of our of our lives as we're growing up has set us apart from the capacity to be able to develop this richness of understanding. I'm, I'm super, super jealous of you, Tristan, that you had um that you that you didn't grow up with shame around sexuality um there are so many of us who who can't say that and and there's a beauty in that for you and i have to think that there's a that that's part of the reason that you were able to come at this conversation with the kind of frankness and the kind of um uh, authenticity that you do have you found that there are ways in which supremacy culture has has not made that possible for you has not given you the capacity to to talk uh, about things in the way that you were able to talk about sex I mean that's an interesting question because I also want to say I didn't get any good sex education growing up so I okay. got this sense okay. that sex was not shameful, but then I did not have any information to go with that. Mm. I had okay, okay. straight up like health class. Um, I learned everything about sex initially from because my mom had sex manuals on the bookshelf in the house and she and I, I would they would disappear for weeks and months at a time and she wouldn't say anything this is a very waspy <laughs> this is a very waspy uh, approach which is like we just don't we're right. gonna put the books out if you want the books you can have them but I'm not going to tell you about them and I'm never going to discuss that you actually read them mm. right whereas whereas my my siblings and I would sneak into my dad's office and steal his playboy episode right. or his playboy right. uh, magazines to learn what we felt like we needed to learn and uh, say in the same way, it was never talked about that they were missing. 
Um, of course, he had, you know, years and years worth. So who knows if he would have even noticed that some were missing. But yes, I, I, right. I'm with you there. <laughs> so that's like, that's the classic thing. And so the first time I saw explicit, explicit images of people having sex was in The Joy of Sex, which I think mm. The Joy of Sex is quite problematic um, in many ways. But there was a sense that I got, which was that sex was playful. It Everyone looked really groovy and it looked very equitable and everyone looked like they're having a good time. You know, I think people who see porn for the first time, depending on what kind of porn they see are like, wait, what's this? How do I make Mm -hmm. sense of this? And how do I make sense of this versus what I'm doing with people? Whereas I was like, oh yeah, this is groovy. And everyone has like amazing pubic hair. Uh, (laughs) Because they really did have great bushes. uh, (laughs) Matter the gender. (laughs) Yeah. It, just, it, just, it was it was it was very it was well, well groomed well drawn yes. it was very well yeah. drawn i have to say it was right. very um i think that um i think that for me white supremacy shows up in sex um i i'm I'm on the end of the white supremacy scale of like many of the white supremacist values that I internalize um, are perfectionism, mm. um, a sense of urgency. Same. Um, and and also black and white thinking. Mm. Right. It's this or it's that. Um, and so I think those have affected those affected me sort of early on, I think, in my sexual journey of wanting things to be perfect. And I think it doesn't help that, you know, everyone's like all over porn as being like the worst possible, you know, media everyone can consume. But so I also feel like Hollywood has done a great, great disservice to us because when we see sexual examples in Hollywood, there's no communication. There's no negotiation. People are look into each other's eyes and they know exactly how the other person wants to be touched and mm. pleasured and loved. So there's no like, are you getting at what Hollywood has done is not create a container of consent? Not yeah, we'll forget. I mean, obviously not contain. Yeah, there's no container. There's no there's no models of consent of people talking about sexuality and consent. Right. Right. But it also sounds like there's no container for communication either. No, they're oh, they're just looking into each other's eyes. Right. <laughs> um which is really problematic and then causes people to think, "Oh, I guess we're just going to figure this out and if we're the right match, all of it's going to come together." Which of mm. course sets all us all up for failure, right? Mm -hmm. It sets us up for failure. So I also feel like that media gave me an idea of sort of a fantasy world and and a fairy tale world. And to me, you know, Robin, you talked about watching The Crown, and I've also been watching The Crown. And especially when Princess Diana and Charles come in in the fourth season, um, you know, they have this, there's, there's a construction of this fairy tale relationship, Mm -hmm. which we now see had this tremendously dark underbelly. Um, Maybe it was even darker than we originally thought. And, and yet it was constructed not as a relationship. It was constructed as actually a way for the British to consolidate imperial power. Mm -hmm. You know, 
their sort of fairy tale construction was a way to bring people in who really were loving and and obsessive and not critical of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Right. So the so the whole notion that like all of things these things could be parsed out and are separate um, doesn't work at all. Sort of falls apart. I feel like I've lost what the question originally was. Oh, uh, how white supremacy shows up in in sexuality. I think also um, when, as a white person, when I'm in relationship with a person of color, um, I have to constantly check the power dynamic because I may feel interpersonally that it feels very equitable. Also, it's a privilege for me to say and read the situation as equitable because I'm white. Right. Uh, By the way, uh, oh, it feels equitable to me. And so therefore it must be equitable, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, That's really, that's a really white thing to say. But also um, like the, just the idea that we can shed what's going on in society and create this sort of bubble in a relationship where race or class or ability doesn't matter um, is really problematic. I feel like I've been challenged again and again in relationships to check my own power, both, both my real power and power society has given me and someone's imagined idea of how much power I have. I grapple with that a lot and it's really painful for me. Yeah. And the work continues, right? Well, you know, when it's like, um, you know, when I say something online, right, I'm saying something online and I'm just feeling like I'm Tristan. Um, I'm saying this thing online. This is just how I feel. And, um, and people respond to it very intensely And to me, I have the same insecurities and awkwardness and, uh, and shame about other things besides sex, you know, going on in my life. And so to me, I don't feel like, oh, I just made this powerful statement online. But then when people read it and respond to it, I have to be reminded that actually people consider you a leader. People consider you like a pivotal figure in this community and what you say matters. Right. Um, I don't think I have, I think I'm in the process of coming to terms with my own power, which is different than privilege. Mm-hmm. I mean, inter, interconnected, of course, but um, yes. it's something I'm really struggling with, you know, that I um, have power over people. And not just because of my whiteness, but like all these other things, my educational background, I'm femme presenting, you know, I, and that gives me power over people and I don't want it. Right. It's the kind of thing that you like don't want, but you have. Do you like this year has been such a big year for lots of reasons. And I have journeyed with you this year. And so I'm privy to some, some of what has happened in the world with you do you feel like do you feel like at any point your voice pivoted either out of or into the work in a different way well to be honest i mean i i got called out in a facebook group which by the way sounds like a shitty shitty t-shirt 
I got called out in a Facebook group and all I got was this t-shirt. Um, I could, I could, ma- I could make that. No, I don't want that shirt. I don't want that shirt. I just mean okay. it, it actually sounds like a stereotype and a trope. Like, you know, when I, if you say it out loud, people are yes. like, well, who right. hasn't been called out on Facebook? Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, and it was very, very, very destructive. Um, the people who called me out lacked empathy and compassion a hundred percent. Um, one of the most startling and awful experiences was that all the white people turned against me and co-opted people of color's anger and rage and began performing that online and, and interpersonally with me. And finally someone told them to knock it off, (laughs) but, um, but and and my experience in aware has been so different, which is that white people like call white people in and say, oh God, yeah, you fuck that up. I've been there or that could have been me. Like, let's unpack it. Whereas the white people in this group were like, you're the most horrible racist person we've ever seen. And we're kind of trying to buoy their own sense of self-righteousness by attacking me. Mm. Um, which I think in this case, the people of color absolutely (laughs) um, can do, but I think the white people need to back the fuck off and not, and to not pretend that like, we're not all, we're not all benefiting from white supremacy. They sort of were like distancing myself, like, oh, look, Tristan's benefiting from white privilege, but we're not, we're good white people. Right. That was really destructive for me. Um, And I think the other thing that was destructive was the note, the very black and white notion that you're either good or you're bad. And so I had been considered good for many years as, as in, oh, Tristan, she's a really good anti-racist sex educator. And then all of a sudden I was bad and I was like shunned and banished. Um, Which is like the same logic of oppression and trauma that gets used, right? Correct. Correct. In fact, one of the people who was, who was at the center of banishing me uh, is a specialist in trauma. So, like, the irony oh, is the ironing is, is, is insane. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I felt, like, um, I felt like the power had shifted and all of a sudden the people of color in the group, anything they said was right. And all the white people just sort of fell in line and did whatever they said. Mm. And so it became less about a healthy community, right? Where everyone, it, where everyone matters in the community. And obviously people of color's voices needs to be, need to be centered, need to be uplifted. White people need to drop the mic and, and just shut up and listen and all of that. But it felt very much like all of a sudden there's like an insider outsider, and I'm the outsider. Mm-hmm. And there's no attempt to acknowledge like my humanity in all of it. You know, like there was just, there was no attempt to be like, oh, Tristan, fuck this up, which I was yeah. readily saying I fucked this up. Yeah. Um, it was like, no, one strike and you're out, which also feels very supremacist to me. Mm-hmm right? That we can't allow for mistakes. And that like plays into my own shit about perfectionism, right? Mm-hmm. right. <laughs> so it was like, it, it triggered me in multiple ways because of my own investment in these values of being 
good and being a perfectionist and doing everything right all the time. But I, I just wonder, like, was that a scary time for you? Oh, God. One of the darkest ever yeah. in my life. You know, I realized that um, part of why it was so hard was that, you know, if I'm just like a rando white person who hasn't thought about my whiteness and someone calls me out on Twitter, there's like, oh, shit, what? Okay, whatever. Or there's like pushback or resistance or, you know, people have had so many bad reactions to that. Right. But I felt like anti-racist was part of my identity. Yeah. And so it felt like people were cutting into my self, my, mm. my sense of yes. self and my sense of like who I am in the world. And that felt like a much deeper cut than maybe some other criticism might, might hit me or might fall on me. Um, mm. Like my sense of like who I know myself to be and then who these folks are saying I am is in total contrast. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, my first instinct was to want to flee, mm -hmm. right? Was to say, I can't, I can't do this work anymore. Like, it, I mean, that's a, that's a trauma response. Right. Fleeing is a trauma response. Right. So it's like, I can't, I can't do this work. I can't, um, I can no longer address like racial stuff. I, it's going to make me a target. Um, I don't, I don't want to be in the spotlight, especially now, um, where things are so heightened and so intense. And so I felt like, Ha but then I felt like, oh, but I have all this work to do because this thing yeah. just happened and I need to like unpack it and I need to, um, and I need to like work through it. So I think there was like conflict at the beginning where I felt like I, I, I just, I need to go. I just need to go. Um, and then staying and staying is so uncomfortable. Yeah. It's so, it's just so uncomfortable. And also I reached out to this group to, to do repair work and they have declined to do that, to do that with me. And that's been a little soul crushing because, yeah. um, you can't do repair work if one of the parties is not interested in doing it with mm -hmm. you. Right. Right. I, I'm, I'm grateful that you shared that with us, Tristan. And I know that our listeners, many, many of us, can relate to those feelings and that, that response to the ways that we are, are challenged and, 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 and the, the ways that it, it challenges our own sense of worth in, mm -hmm. in the work. Mm -hmm. um, I, how, how have you, how have you found your way out of that? Where do you find yourself today? Where, how how are you different because of it? Um, what's what's the best version of yourself now mm. that you've experienced that? <clears throat> well, even though all the white people in the group abandoned me, I did have a community of people who aren't in sex education, who are white anti-racists, who I could um, look to for support, for helping me analyze it. Uh, for helping yeah. me talk about it. So that that was really important, 
right, was to talk about it with with white people and also then talk about it with people of color mm -hmm. um, sure. and and see the sort of significance and see the impact. Again, I think I was naive. I'm not, I don't consider myself naive about anything. I think I, I was naive about the impact mm -hmm. my voice has and my behavior has. Um, I, it felt like a micro, it just felt like it didn't feel as big as it felt to other people. And mm -hmm. so I had to then examine why. And again, I think sure. that's like the idea that my measurement is correct and other people's isn't is a form of white supremacy. Sure. Um, so I had a really good support system. And so a support system of anti-racist people. Then, then my friends and my loved ones and my sort of inner circle who continually reminded me that um, – that this is the work and you have to do it and it's going to suck sometimes yeah. and you're not a bad person. You know, internalizing that I was a bad person was a big piece of it. Right. Old trauma, just like rearing its head. Um, I was also in group therapy and individual therapy at the time. Um, I'm in just individual right now, but so, and both my therapist and my group um, were, anti-racist in like anti-racism was one of its values. Right. So, right. um, so I felt like I had people in that arena in that sort of therapeutic arena to also share those values with me. And, and so doing therapeutic work without this sort of, um, I guess, objective lens, you know, that some of therapy is really problematic because it focuses on the individual, over all the context and all over mm -hmm. all sort of stresses and oppression. And I, I feel like I, people, the people I worked with um, have re really have recognized that there are all these moving parts to it and to not acknowledge some of the oppressive forces that lead us to have mental health issues um, rather than just a sort of individual failing. I think that's really important. Sure. Um, I, so my best self, my best self, my best self. Um, I feel like the pandemic has clarified a lot of things for me, um, in my relationships. Um, I feel like there are people who I have grown closer to and I've deepened my relationships with, which is you know, somewhat surprising because I can't see anyone or hug anyone or, you know, I've probably, I, there's one person I see without a mask. And over these nine months, I've probably seen one, two, three, four other people physically distanced with masks. Mm. I mean, that's not a lot. And yet some of my relationships have really deepened over this time. And it's really clear to me. And, and certainly I've had more time to nurture them. So I, mm -hmm. I, I do sure. acknowledge that. And some of my relationships have like really faded into the background mm. um, in a strange, again, like unexpected way. You know, people are don't have the bandwidth, first of all. People really don't have the bandwidth. And so there are people I was checking in with and being like, you, you don't have to respond to this. I know we have so, also have so much going on. Um, and then eventually just stopped, you know, reaching out because it was clear that 
they were not going to respond. Um, so there's like a real combination of like gratitude and grief going on for me in my relationships mm. because there's loss for sure. But then I've also gained, I feel that with you, Robin, that our relationship has deepened mm -hmm. over the pandemic. Absolutely. And we've been in touch more frequently and more intentionally. Mm -hmm. Tristan, I, you know, we talk so often here on the podcast about how we, we are getting our hands dirty in the work and encouraging our listeners to get their hands dirty in the work. And I think you've illustrated for our listeners a really important piece of this journey is that the work isn't sexy. <laughs> the work isn't, <laughs> um, the, you know, the work, the work can feel hard and it can feel heartbreaking mm -hmm. and, and the, and, and it is, it is not, uh, this is not the kind of work that we do to, um, you know, to, to, to lift ourselves up, to pat ourselves on the back. The work is hard and, and the results of the work can often feel hard and look hard and, and can challenge us. And I, I'm just, I'm grateful that you have, have opened that piece of yourself for our listeners. I, I thank you for that. Um, as a pastor, I am, uh, very aware of how difficult that kind of authenticity can often be for many of us, especially those of us who are conditioned in whiteness in the first place. Um, and so just know that I am, I am grateful for that. And I know our listeners are as well. And I also want to acknowledge that it also requires you acknowledging that you have harmed people. Yes. Um, because yes. that's an, that's an acknowledgement I have to grapple with is that the stuff mm -hmm. that went down in this group, um, I, there were people who are harmed. Were white mm -hmm. people harmed? No. And they can fuck off. But there were people of color harmed by my behavior in this group. And I have harmed people of color in relationship before. And who wants to say that out loud? Like who wants to actually right. like reckon with that? Right. You know, you know I, I, um, I've been I've been on this journey with you this year, um, having more of an up close perspective to this, and also I have been in touch with a colleague who who was canceled, and you know my concern with cancel culture is that it replicates patterns of oppression which are rooted in unresolved trauma. And so much of what we do at the Activist Theology Project is steward relationship. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't know how to be in relationship with ourselves, then we don't know how to be in relationship with others. And then that impacts the cultural body. And I just want to say thank you for um, letting me be a part of this process with you. And also letting me say the truth about what I felt was happening, which was patterns of oppression are replicating itself in a way that is harmful. And so, yes, you might have caused harm, and also harm was causing harm. Mm -hmm. 
And until we as a cultural body reckon with that and really come to terms with how we are in relationship with patterns of harm or unresolved trauma or oppression, they're all the same. I don't think we'll be able to get free. And I think we will continue to replicate these patterns of bad relationality or poor relationality, toxic relationality, and patterns of harm. And I just feel really grateful, both as a trans person and person of color, that that we continue to steward our togetherness in a way that hopefully minimizes harm. Well, and speaking of be, being free also and canceling people, I think this is also deep, deeply related to prison culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, sending someone to prison is essentially canceling them, right? Canceling them right. from most of society. And so I think the other piece of this is that, that like white people cannot be doing this work for people of color. Mm-hmm. I think that yes. that's one of the biggest misunderstandings and then one of the things that like for me was like a huge light bulb moment which changed everything which is that white supremacy harms everyone that like we have a stake in this work this is not about me helping people of color or making their lives better it's actually because it harms all of us. And we, and we have to then see how deeply we are invested in it. If we are deeply invested in people being free, we have to look at how many people in this country are fucking incarcerated mm-hmm. on a literal level. And why I have an investment in abolishing prison. Like, I, it's not about me being in prison or my loved one being in prison. And so I want to blah, blah, blah. It's like, Think of the way in which our society works mm-hmm. and the sort of punishment systems and the criminalization of people. It, yeah. We've got to think of this notion of freedom in both literal and really expansive terms. Tristan, thank you for this conversation. Thanks for being with us today. Um, I would love for you to let our listeners know how they can be in touch with you, how they can find you online. Yes. Um, So I am on social media across all platforms at Tristan Terramino. I've taken a break from Facebook and it has really drastically improved my mental health. So (laughs) if you want to get in touch with me, don't don't find me on Facebook. Um, Okay. (laughs) I also have a podcast, a weekly podcast, which goes up on Mondays. um, And it's called Sex Out Loud. Um, I just had a guest on who was talking about how to have conversations about sex with her like 13-year-old son. Mm. And I just think it was a beautiful, she's funny and she's a comedian and she can make anything funny, but I think it's a really beautiful representation of how we can make these generational shifts in how we talk about sex so that the environments that we grew up with are not replicated again, right? That we have different kinds of conversations with with young people. Um, And then I have a website, tristanterramino.com. If you just start typing it, like Google will, don't worry about the spelling. Google will figure it out for you. Google will find you. (laughs) Yes. I'm so glad that we could do this. You've added so much to, to this work and... 
I'm so glad that we could have you on the podcast. And I'm really glad that our listeners have a chance to get to know you a little bit better. And, you know, folks should check out Tristan's podcast. I've been on a couple times and Tristan is very serious about the work of anti-racism. It's one of the reasons why I remain connected with her and stewarded togetherness with her. And so I'm really glad that you've been here. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the work you both do in the world. Thank you. Well, Activist Theology podcast listeners, we're really grateful you were on this journey with us today, and we will be back next week. We will be taking a couple of weeks off for the holiday and starting season two fresh in January. So we hope that you will continue that journey with us after the first of the year. As a reminder, you can find us on all of the social media outlets that you use at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. And until then, Dr. Robin. Let's get free, y'all. We will get free and get your hands dirty, friends. You've given you've been given a really great example this week on on how to do that. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, Activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. So early, they show me no-